Hey, so we've been in this series for a couple weeks now. It is called Pursuit, and we are looking through the book of First and Second Samuel. Originally, just one book split up into two for, you know, storage reasons once uh, books were invented. But eventually... Uh, they got split up into two. We're tackling them both. We're going to go through First and Second Samuel in one big lump. And so far, we've covered some really interesting ground. We've uh, got some principles that we've learned about pursuing. And, and everywhere in this book, you find someone chasing something else. Someone is chasing something down. And behind the scenes of every one of these stories, there is another person who is also in the pursuit, and that is God. God is the one who is pursuing people. And in particular, one of the things that we've looked at is that God is pursuing someone who would pursue him back. That's what God is looking for. And we're going to read that verse again today, but a little bit later, because we're going to see it in its context. But just a little bit of review for some of the things that we've covered. The most important thing that you need to know is the narrative flow of the book starts with a guy named Samuel being born almost miraculously. Samuel becomes the leader. The high priest and his family get cursed by God for their disobedience, and they, most of them, die. And so now Samuel is leading the people of Israel. But Samuel isn't a priest. He's not really a judge. He's kind of a judge. He's not really a prophet. He's kind of a prophet. He's just this dude who's willing to hear what God says and tell other people what God says. And that's okay with God. God says, I'm, I'll take anyone who's just going to listen to my words and then say those words to other people. And so that's Samuel. He's hearing God, he's speaking God's words, and he's leading the people. But then he gets old and the people get upset and they're like, we want a king. And so Samuel says, fine then, I'll give you a king. And he gives them exactly the king that they would be looking for. A super tall, super handsome dude from one of the small tribes of Israel, but one of the significant tribes. Uh, and he is this He's just this beautiful beast of a man who likes to hide in luggage when they're trying to make him king. And see, that's the problem with Saul. On the one hand, he looks like everything that you want, but everything on the inside of who he is just falls flat. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the, what he needs to have to be the real king. But they appoint him to be king anyway. And God chooses him for some reason that he doesn't actually tell us in the, in the text. God chooses him for some reason anyway. And so then Saul becomes the king. And last week, he stepped into his role and did something amazing. He unraveled the worst story in the book of Judges and kind of turned it around into being a good end result. Saul did better than any of the other judges had done. Saul also had the same power that Samson had. It tells us in the text that Saul had the Spirit of God come upon him in power. And those are the exact same words that were used for Samson. You know, the big, you know, long hair dude in, he's like the, the Bible version of Hercules, you know, that guy. And Saul had that same power. And we also saw Saul win a battle very similarly to how Gideon, the first and the best of the judges, won his battle. And so at this point in the story, you're thinking, this is going to be great. This is going to be fabulous. Saul is the king we wanted. But I warned you last week that that was the high point and everything was downhill from there. And in fact, today we get to see just how low it could go in just a short period of time. In fact, what we're going to find is we're going to find everything backfire. What Saul tries to do backfires against him. And in fact, someone else tries to do something different and it backfires in a, in a good way back on him. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But the theme of this whole thing is covered by a verse that Jesus spoke in Luke. So ages and ages after Samuel, Jesus is on the scene and he says these words in Luke chapter 9, verse 24. It says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What we're going to find today is that the person who tries to save himself ends up losing everything. And the person who gives himself away is the person who gains everything. 
This is the kind of backfire that Jesus himself teaches us, and uh, it takes us two chapters to go through, so you're going to have to read and listen fast because we've got a significant amount of ground to cover. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and let's jump right on in. It says this, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. I have to pause. It's only one verse, but I have to pause to just let you know something. The word 30 and the word 40 don't show up in the Hebrew text. It literally says in the Hebrew text, Saul was years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel two years. And there's like a gap in the text. And that's because the way text gets transmitted through the centuries, sometimes little words get rubbed funny, and no one can read them anymore, and so they just left it empty and they didn't understand it. But the uh, modern scholars have scoured through the entire scriptures to find, is there any other reference to how long Saul reigned? And yeah, in the book of Acts, there's a reference to him reigning 40-some years, and so they slip the 40 years into that one spot, and then they're like, well, if he reigned 40 years, then and that would be 70, 42 years, then he'd be 72 if he started when he was 30, and people didn't live that long, so he must have started not too much older than 30, so let's put that at 30. So it's a bunch of educated guesses, but, you know, smart stuff, and I'm only telling you that because you need to know that real scholarly work goes into figuring out what Samuel originally wrote when he wrote this stuff down, even if we don't have Samuel's own piece of paper you know, that he wrote the stuff down on. But anyway, he was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the country, hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. And already you should see some red flags. Something weird is happening here. And the weird thing that's happening here is that Gibeah, the city that we have talked a lot about over the past three weeks, is Saul's hometown, right? Gibeah is the town where Saul lived. It's also the town where Samuel said, oh, by the way, Saul, there is in Gibeah a Philistine outpost. And so when God comes on you in power, I want you to do whatever your hand finds to do. Hint, hint, get rid of the Philistines in your hometown. Saul never does that. Anyway, now the red flag that you should get is who is in Gibeah? Jonathan, not Saul. And where is Saul? He's in Michmash. And I know you don't know maps very well from the ancient um, time of King Saul. And so I thought I would show you a map so that you could get kind of a glimpse of what's actually happening here. So this is all of ancient Palestine, Israel. You've basically got modern-day Israel. You can kind of see there. There's the Dead Sea at the top, uh, excuse me, at the bottom, and then there's the Sea of Galilee, this tiny little sea up at the top. They don't have those names back then, but that's okay. Anyway, that's the basic thing. Now we're going to zoom in to where Saul and Jonathan were. It's this area in that red square. Everything in today's story happens in that little red square. And they did a zoom on it, but I don't like what they did. And so I'm going to show you my own zoom. Michmash is right smack dab in the middle. That's that dot. Gibeah, where Jonathan is, is the star right a little bit lower. In fact, I'll put some stars up there. Do I have the stars? Do they? Yeah, there they are. Michmash is right in the middle. Gibeah is the one farther to the south. And you'll also notice... I don't know if you can read this, but there's a city to the left, to the west, that's called Gibeon, and a city to the north that's called Geba. And so there are a lot of cities in that area that have this sort of GB sound to them. And maybe Geba is just another part of the region of Gibeah because Samuel referred to it as Gibeah of God. And so maybe Geba, scholars think, Geba and Gibeah were like the same region and and stuff. That'll make sense in just a little bit. But the point is, Saul is not in the hometown where he got his very first mission. Instead, Saul is at Michmash, a city we literally haven't heard about yet. Why is Saul up there, I wonder? 
Well, let's keep going through the text and see what happens here. So we're only at verse 3. I'm sorry about that. But let's go ahead and see what it says. It says, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba. That's the Philistine out. That's the one Samuel was talking about. Samuel said, at Gibeah, your hometown, you know where there's this Philistine outpost, Saul, do whatever you want to do there. It's your hometown. It should be God's place. There's a Philistine outpost. Saul, do whatever you want to do there because you got the power of God. And Saul doesn't do anything, but Jonathan does. Jonathan attacks the Philistine outpost at Geba. And the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. Let's tell everybody about this. So all Israel heard the news. Oh, this is so great. What news did they hear? Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. There are so many other red flags in this story. We've only made it this far, and already there are things that are like, why is it happening this way? Gibeah is Saul's hometown. Gibeah is the place where the Philistine outpost is. Gibeah is the place where Samuel told Saul to go take care of those Philistines, but no, Jonathan is there. Jonathan is the one who is at Gibeah. Saul's elsewhere. And then Jonathan is the one who takes the outpost. But just to add frosting on top of this terrible cake, Saul takes the credit. He sends messengers throughout all of Israel and he's like, Saul has taken the outpost. No, you didn't. Jonathan did. You were hiding off in Michmash. Oh, and it's even better because immediately when Saul sends out that message, did you notice? He asks all Israel to gather and meet him at Gilgal. That's not Michmash. That's not Gibeah. Let me show you where it is. This is interesting. You ready? It's that star, way the monkey out to the east. It's, it's that one. Like, like his son has just won a battle in Gibeah, right? He has just done the thing that was like Saul's original mission. Jonathan has just taken care of it. And now Saul, who is tidy up in Michmash with twice the number of soldiers that he gave to his son Jonathan, decides, huh, now the Philistines are mad. I will call Israel to meet me farther east. <laughs> the dude's just running away. Like literally, he's just running away. He's farther away now. So if, if that's not enough red flags for you, I got a heap more. Take a look at five. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots. That's a lot of chariots. 6,000 charioteers. Okay, two per chariot. That makes sense. And soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Okay, that's intimidating. And they went and camped at Michmash. Why are the Philistines going to Michmash? Because that's where Saul was. Right? Saul was just there. He just advertised to the world that Saul's the one who took out the Philistine outpost. And now the Philistines are like, okay, fine, let's go to Michmash. And Saul is not there anymore because he skipped town, literally. They assemble at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Jonathan has just won a victory. In last week's story, Saul had won a major victory. And now, Saul has done something. Listen, I am clearly blaming Saul in this because he has done something to move from Michmash to Gilgal and lose the trust of all the men who were following him. Like, what were these men doing with him anyway? They knew this was a war. They knew they were an army. Why are they with Saul and then suddenly getting scared at the Philistines? Sure, that's a big army. Don't get me wrong. 
But Jonathan just defeated an entire outpost with his ragtag group of people. And Saul had just done this miraculous thing like the week before, it seems like. So what in the world? They're just scared. They've lost trust in their commander. Of course they've lost trust in their commander. He never does anything. Look at verse 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. What? Did you hear Samuel mentioned in this story yet? No. We'll come back to that. That's weird. The time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Okay, so Saul says, I'm going to go ahead and do a sacrifice. We don't have Samuel here. He didn't show up. I'm going to do sacrifices. And then he gets one of them done and then Samuel shows up. Verse 11, what have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Oh, okay. You hadn't prayed yet and so you decided you were going to offer the burnt offering. That's, that's interesting, although it is, it is a little weird, don't you think? Maybe a little bit of a red flag, don't you think? That Paul, that, excuse me, Saul said, um, I saw the men were scattering. I saw that you didn't come. He's blaming these other two groups of people. And then he says, the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought they will come down now against me at Gilgal. You get this really clear picture that Saul, so far in this story, is only trying to protect himself. He doesn't care about the men who've run away. He doesn't care about Samuel and what Samuel is up to. He doesn't literally even care about God. He says, I'm in danger, and then I realized I hadn't sought God. So, let's burn some animals because that's what that's what religious people do when they're trying to seek god right you, you burn animals that's how that's how you get god on your side and saul's like i've seen this done before i'm going to do this myself let's let's figure this thing out well clearly saul did the wrong thing look what samuel says verse 13 you have done a foolish thing samuel said you have not kept the command the lord your god gave you what command was there a command in this passage that you'd heard? I, I hadn't heard, seen. You haven't kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, I want to dig in this for just a little bit. Because the question of Saul's sin is really important. If we misunderstand his sin, then we misunderstand what Samuel was saying to him. We misunderstand the punishment and we misunderstand the lesson we're supposed to take from it. And so I want to dig into it for just a little bit with you. First, let me tell you how I was taught it when I was a kid. My mom was my Bible teacher in school, and so she taught me about Manasseh and all the other kings, and one of the things she taught me about was Saul. And in this particular story, she said, oh, command of God, an appointed, a, a set time that Samuel was supposed to show up, put those two things together, and she went back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, which is amazing. Take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. It says this. Samuel is speaking. He says, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Perfect. 
We have a command. We have a time frame. We have Samuel in chapter 10, verse 8, telling Saul, you need to go to Gilgal, wait seven days. I will do these two sacrifices. Then I will tell you what to do, and then you will do it. It's a perfect tie-up. The commentary that I was reading last night to you know, double-check a bunch of stuff also took the same approach that 1 Samuel 10, 8, is the command from, Saul, from Samuel that Saul was supposed to keep. And so because Saul waited, but he didn't wait enough, and because he did the sacrifices instead of Samuel, and because Saul didn't wait for Samuel's instruction, that was Saul's disobedience. Whew, real nice and tight. Just one problem. Um, 10.8 happens in the story where Samuel anoints Saul to be the king. And then, after Samuel anoints Saul to be the king, he says to Saul, um, you're going to leave this place, and you're going to start heading home, and on your way home, you're going to meet some prophets, and they're going to be prophesying, and the Holy Spirit of God is going to come on you, and He's going to transform you. He's going to empower you. You're going to prophesy along with the prophets. You're going to experience God's presence in some sort of trance-like, amazing way here with all these other prophets, and people are going to think you're a prophet, and then you're going to go home, and don't worry, when you get home, you'll find the donkeys that you were looking for are already there. And then, after you get home, let's all gather everybody at Mizpah, and up at Mizpah, let's announce that you're going to be the king. But instead of just announcing it quickly, let's do this long drawn out process of casting lots throughout all of the land of Israel so that then we can identify it should be the tribe of Benjamin and then the household of Kish and then eventually Saul. And, and then we'll narrow it down to you. And then Saul, remember, you're supposed to be there at the coronation, but you're not at the coronation because you were hiding in the luggage and we had to take extra time to go look through the luggage to find you. And then we found you. You, and then we made you the king, and then everybody went home happy. Before, but before we went home happy, we then went to Gilgal, and we celebrated with everybody, with a whole bunch of sacrifices and everything, we celebrated that you're the king, and then you went to war against the people, the, you know, the people who were attacking Jabesh Gilead, and you, you liberated Jabesh Gilead, and you helped them to get back on their feet, and it took a while to collect all these people, and then after you had all those people at Jabesh Gilead helped, then you you came back and we reconfirmed your kingship and it was a beautiful celebration a wonderful celebration and then after that you got a standing army up in Michmash and you also put Jonathan in charge of the army at Gibeah and wow that was a really busy seven days because see if Samuel in 10:8 said go to Gilgal wait seven days then I'll show up and we'll do sacrifices, and I'll tell you what to do. Saul must have had a super busy week if by the time he finally makes it to Gilgal in chapter 14 or 13, he can wait, right? He, he, clearly, 10.8 cannot be the previous command to what we see in Samuel 13, for Samuel 13. It can't. There's way too much stuff that has happened in between. Also, did you notice one of the things that happened in between is Samuel and all the people of Israel met at a place called Gilgal and they did sacrifices and they celebrated Saul as the new king. So they've already done a Gilgal sacrifice ceremony at least once in that whole thing. And then third, what's the deal with Jonathan? Because if Saul has just been anointed king and he's only 30, how old is this Jonathan kid who supposedly defeated a bunch of Philistines at an outpost and he was the commander of a thousand people? Now, I don't know how early you had your children, but my guess is Jonathan can't be more than 10 or maybe 15 at the crazy outside edge of craziness. And I tell you what, I'm not putting a 15-year-old in charge of a thousand men and then trusting him. And if a 15-year-old had defeated a Philistine outpost, you better believe that would have made the news. But Saul is somehow able to mask all that and take credit for everything. Put all these pieces together, and there's way too much time that has happened between 10-8 and this sin. So the sin cannot be that he didn't wait long enough. The sin cannot be 
that he did the sacrifices. We've already seen in Samuel many times people who aren't priests do sacrifices. Samuel once went to a town and blessed a sacrifice that had already been done, and he then blessed it, and then the people ate. But the other people did the sacrifice before Samuel got there. Like, we've already seen that. It happened in chapter 10. But anyway, there are other people who have done sacrifices. So it's not the sacrifice that's the problem. It's, that's not the sin. It's not the not waiting for Samuel long enough. That's not the sin. Something else is wrong here. Are there any other commands that God has given to Saul that he hasn't done? Well, as a matter of fact, the two verses before 10.8 had a command. Let me show you those. 1 Samuel 10, 6-7, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. And once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do for God is with you. The command God gave to Saul is go do something good because I'm with you. There's a Philistine outpost in your hometown, Saul. Do whatever your hand finds to do, because I'm with you. Saul, I want you to be courageous, because I'm with you. You've heard this before. Be strong and very courageous, because I'm with you. That's the kind of command that God gave to Saul that wasn't just to be for the next seven days. That was the kind of command that God had given to Saul that was intended to be a command that started today and continued on for the foreseeable future. Yeah, maybe Saul had some idea that when he sent the message throughout all Israel to gather at Gilgal, maybe he also sent a message to Samuel and he said, Samuel, come here at Gilgal. And then maybe Samuel wrote a letter back to him and he said, okay, I'll be there in seven days. And so then Saul waited seven days, but Samuel didn't show up in the time, and maybe there is all this other backstory stuff that we don't know about, but I don't think so, because the narrator of the story, if that were important, would have told us that. Instead, the only thing we've got is the one command that Samuel gave to Saul that was not limited to the next week was, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. That's a command that I am terrified to say out loud to people. Because I'm afraid someone will think God is with them and they will do something their hand finds to do when it's completely not God's thing to do. Right? That's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid I'm going to empower someone. I'm going to say, hey, listen, do whatever your hand finds to do because God is with you because I can't promise the second half of that statement. I can't promise that God is actually with that other person. But what about me? I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. But the first thing I want to highlight for you is that the sin of Saul was literally that even though Saul had God with him, he sought his own protection. Even though Saul had God with him, he kept trying to protect himself. That's why Saul says to Samuel, I was afraid they would come after me and you weren't here and they were running away and I hadn't reached out to God yet so I decided to burn an animal. And this is why I know Saul's heart was not in the sacrifice. It's because Saul was doing with the sacrifice the same thing the people in Samuel had done with the ark of God earlier. Do you remember earlier when they said, oh, God's not meeting us in battle, he's not helping us? They lost a battle and so then they say, let's bring the ark. That'll force God to help us. And so they bring the ark and the ark doesn't help them. God doesn't help them because he's still mad at them for all this stuff. And the ark gets captured by the Philistines. Saul is doing the same thing here. He's like, how can I manipulate God? How can I get God to protect me? And the reason I know he's trying to manipulate God is that based on what God actually said, God was already there. And what Saul thought was, I need God on my side. So I'm going to do this sacrifice. But the promise God had given him was, I'm with you. So in one sense, Saul says he needed to seek the Lord. In another sense, 
the Lord was standing next to him the whole time saying, why are you looking over there? Saul wasn't actually seeking God. He was seeking his own self-protection. That's why Samuel's so upset with him. That's why Samuel says, listen, you blew it, boy. You had a chance here to be the king for a long time, but no. Take a look at this verse in 13, 14 again. He says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. You're the one who has not walked with your God. You're the one who has not truly sought him. And so, since you haven't sought God, God is going to seek someone else. Saul wasn't seeking God, so God sought someone else. Now, we've covered most of the ground for the lesson, but there are three other things that you need to see. Um, there are un- like different consequences that show up in the rest of the story. And so we're going to plow our way, we're going to read all the way through chapter 14, and you're going to see uh, something bad that happens with Saul, but you're also going to see some, some stories, two stories about Jonathan that highlight for us Highlight for us why Saul was so off track and why Jonathan had it right, okay? So there's a, there's a lot of reading to go along, but I think it's really fascinating and interesting stories. So uh, follow along with me. It's in verse 15. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. He had gone from 2,000. Now he's down to only 600. Huh, interestingly, that's roughly the same amount of men that uh, Gideon had at one point in his journey. I think he eventually uh, did a 300-men battle, but 600 is twice that. So in a sense, this is telling us that Saul is actually twice as powerful as Gideon. It's an interesting little numerical thing, but the number 600 and 300 bounces around a lot in the Old Testament, and so it's just an interesting little thing. But anyway, so now Saul still has a bunch of people. I mean, it's not the same as before, but he's still got some people. Verse 16, Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah. Oh, somehow Saul made his way to Gibeah too. Somehow he snuck around Michmash, avoided all those Philistines, and made his way down to his hometown of Gibeah, because that's where Jonathan was. I wonder if Saul maybe thought, hmm, I'll be with someone who's actually good at fighting. And so he went to where Jonathan was. Anyway, they're now in Gibeah in Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another towards Beth Haran, and the third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points, and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and repointing goads. And you're like, what in the world? Why did I just read this little economic excursus in the midst of this um, text? And the reason is because the Philistines had iron and the Israelites did not. This is the Iron Age. This is, this is when iron was beginning to get invented and discovered and used. And the Philistines knew how to do it, and the Israelites did not. And the Philistines wouldn't train them, so the Israelites had no blacksmiths, but the Philistines had a bunch. And so in order for the Israelites to get metal, they needed to go to the Philistines, and the Philistines would charge them a whole bunch of money because it is lucrative for them. But the point is what we read next. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. They've been doing all this battle. And Saul and Jonathan are the only ones with swords. Keep going. It's just... mm. Now, a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. (laughs) Now Saul is hiding off in Gibeah, and Jonathan is going up to Michmash. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. Oh, how nice. 
With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Ahijah, he was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. Ahijah was a priest. Saul had a priest with him. Why is he doing sacrifices on it? I don't even get it, but Saul had a priest literally with him. You know why? Because he can't get Samuel. Might as well get some descendant of Eli. Yeah, that'll help. Anyway, no one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozez and the other Seneh. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. There's, there's something about this story that I find just incredibly powerful. There are a few times in the Bible where a person expresses the same feeling. One of those times, you might have heard about it, it's the story of the, the fiery furnace. These guys don't bow down to a gold idol. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, fine then, then if you won't bow down to this idol, then you know, I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. And the guys say, well, we won't bow down to your idol, king, and we know that God can save us. And if he does, that would be nice. And Jonathan says the same thing here. Jonathan says, God can Maybe he will, so let's go. That's Jonathan's motto. 100% confidence in who God is and what God can do. 100% hope that if I do the thing God is leading me to do, then God will meet me there. God had never promised to Jonathan, do whatever your hand finds to do because I'll be with you. This is just Jonathan acting on faith. These guys over here are, are uncircumcised. That means they have disregarded God's law. They are not following God's law in any way. And so as a result, they're the people who are outside of God's family, outside of God's fellowship. God has already told us that we're supposed to deal with these people and get them out of the land. And Jonathan says, I know God can, maybe he will, so let's go. And that attitude I find inspiring and terrifying. And that's why the armor bearer, dude, what he says next, the armor bearer, verse 7, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you no matter what. Keep going. Verse 8, Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. I love it when in the Bible, someone just says a sign out loud without actually asking God to do that sign. They're just like, God, I know you can hear me. So if they say, come up, that'll be the sign that we should go up and kill them all. And if they say, wait there, then that'll be the sign for us to run away, okay? So um, I know God just heard that, and that's what he says. He's giving God one of these sign moments, like Gideon did, if you remember the book of Judges. Little fleece on the ground, God make the fleece wet and make the ground dry, or vice versa, you know, depending on the day. Uh, But Jonathan is doing a similar thing here. He just trusts God enough to hear him. He just trusts Trust God enough to pay attention to what he's saying. He's like, that'll be our sign. We'll make sure we're giving God this option. That'll be our sign. So what happens? Let's see what happens. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outposts. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in because they were hiding in a bunch of caves, remember? The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And I just think about that armor bearer. He's holding a lot of armor, right? But not a sword. Jonathan's got the only sword. His dad's got another sword. What's the armor bearer carrying? He's carrying a shield, maybe. Maybe he's carrying a little wooden stick. Like, like he's, just, he's just going up to these dudes with just Jonathan. Jonathan. 
and God. So, Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and feet. I love that little detail. He has to, like, crawl to get up to the top of this. With his armor bearer right behind him, the Philistines, it doesn't even tell us how this happened. Just look, the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. How is the armor bearer killing these people? I don't know. It's just like, what in the world? Somehow, even though they're climbing up, you've seen Princess Bride, right? The guy's climbing the cliff of insanity. There's no way the dude up top with a sword is going to die unless he lets this guy get all the way up and then rest for a little bit. But no, these guys somehow, Jonathan gets up to the top and whoop, they're dead. And oh, some of them didn't die, but the armor bearer, he's got it. Don't worry, him with his little stick or whatever. I'm just thinking this is one of those miracle moments. Verse 14 In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Another one of these miracle moments. Then verse 15, panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and the field. Those in the outposts and the raiding parties. And the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who, was not, who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites because remember previously it had been with the Philistines, you know, because they had captured it. But now Saul is like, oh, let's get all, this, all the little happy tools we have. Bring the ark. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. In other words, they're doing it all by themselves. We don't even need to go get the ark. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to battle finally. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. Jonathan kills 20 guys, him and his armor bearer, and God does all the rest. He just causes the Philistine army to melt away, and Saul is like, should we bring the ark? Shouldn't we bring the ark? I don't know. You're the priest. You tell me. Hey, let's just go up there. And then people start swarming. Literally, Saul did just about nothing. It's all God. Verse 24. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Uh, This morning, there was a kid here in our church building who told me that the word stupid was a bad word. But that's just about the dumbest thing I've ever heard any, anybody ever say going into battle. I mean, hey, everybody, let's go to battle. Oh, no, don't eat anything. We don't want you to be, like, strong or anything. <laughs> the best way to go into battle is to have everybody be hangry, you know? Just have everybody be mad and, and weak and jittery and just have everybody not have eaten anything all day long. That's how we motivate our soldiers. This is the dumbest strategy in all military and political history. And yet, for some reason, the people have done it. So they're all just weak. Keep going. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Yah! Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That's why the men are faint. Jonathan said, (laughs) I love this, My father has made trouble for the country. 
See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, Go out among the men and tell them, Each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everybody brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. And it's like, yes, Saul did something right. He recognized the men were violating God's law, so he brought them in to fix that situation, so they're now going to follow God's law and not eat blood. And then he builds an altar, which weirdly is the first time he's ever done that? What was the other sacrifice he did? I don't know. Anyway, it's just Saul said, let's go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let's not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. Do whatever your hand finds to do. But the priest said, let's inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. What Saul is about to do next looks like he is using the priest and the priest's tools to get an answer from God. But we are told right here in this verse, 37, that God is not answering Saul that day. Saul's okay with pretending to be religious. It's a thing he does. See what happens next. Verse 38. Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let's find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son, Jonathan, he must die. Why would he say that? It's just dumb. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, you will stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Let's see who sinned. The crowd of 600 men and all the extra people who came, who were just eating the blood in the animals, you know, who sinned? The crowd of all those people, or me and my son Jonathan. (laughs) Yeah, do you see what he's setting up here? How many people does he plan to kill? Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Urim and Thummim are these two things that the priest kept in his priestly ephod, that uh, linen uh, apron that he kind of wore. And it was a thing that God had told Moses the priests could use to determine whether God was answering them. And they were a yes-no kind of thing. Sometimes they're called casting lots. Sometimes they're called Urim and Thummim. But basically it's like you get two, two... quarters. If they're both heads up, it's a yes. If they're both heads down, it's a no. And if they're either or, then it's a nothing. You don't have an answer. That's basically how this thing worked. And so Saul is like, all right, let's, let's toss him. And if it's Urim, then it's you know one. And if it's Thummim, it's the other. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot and the men were cleared. Oh, Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die? And Saul said, may God deal with me, be it it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. I don't have much sympathy for Saul anymore. Such a dumb command to tell your army, don't eat anything. Dumber command to declare that the person who did should die. Dumber command to look his son in the eye and say, yep, it's you. Dumber attitude to take one of the two swords in the entire land and cut down your own son because he tasted some honey. This is Saul's motto. Jonathan's motto was far more noble, but Saul's motto is this. Live in fear. Protect yourself at any cost. 
live in fear, and protect yourself at any cost. Let's finish out the story. Verse 45, the men said to Saul, so Jonathan, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel, never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. That means in this moment, Saul, the king of the nation, has just experienced his first boycott. He's just experienced his first coup. He was in charge of everything. And he said, Jonathan must die. And the men say, what are you nuts? No, he won't die. We will save him from you. All these people are standing, standing up against Saul, who is king turned tyrant. And they're like, now Saul, we don't care about you. Whatever you say doesn't matter. We're rescuing Jonathan. That means that everything Saul was looking for, this whole story, literally everything he wanted, has now been taken from him. Samuel told him that he was no longer going to be the king. Something was going to happen there. God was going to find someone else. Saul has lost his men. They came back, but they didn't come back because of him. They came back because of Jonathan. And now they're siding with Jonathan. Saul sought his own security, and he lost everything. That's the backfire. Saul sought his own security, and then he lost everything. But notice what happened to Jonathan. Did you see what happened to Jonathan? The whole story. He's been flying under the radar. He's never taken credit for anything that's gone on this whole time. He's just been under the radar. He hasn't announced anything that he's done. He's just accomplished some great things. He was serving the other people. He was serving God. And he was even seeking out God's glory. And Jonathan, seeking God's glory, ended up receiving glory for himself. Did you see that? These men are now lifting up Jonathan as the hero. So Jonathan sought God's glory. But he got glory for himself. That's the backfire. The person who seeks to save themselves will lose everything. The person who seeks to save others will gain. The person who seeks to protect themselves will lose everything. The person who loses himself for others and for God's glory will gain. And so as Saul degenerates lower and lower, Jonathan rises higher and higher. And at the end of this chapter, you might be thinking, is Jonathan supposed to be the next king? He'd certainly be worthy of it. But Samuel has already said, I need to end the Saul bloodline. So we're still wondering what's to come next. Let's just finish out the story. Verse 46, Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and they withdrew to their own land. And then the next verses talk about Saul fighting some groups of people. It talks a little bit about his family, his children, his, his wife's name, things like that. And then finally, the very last verse, verse 52, it says, All the days of Saul there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw, whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. Because anytime Saul saw anyone who was worthy of coming and protecting him, he would bring him in. Listen. There's so many ways I want to point the finger at Saul and be like, Saul, you're, you're a bad guy. But at the same time, we are just as guilty. We are just as guilty as Saul. And I want to share with you just three questions based on a truth from the New Testament. I shared this with you last week. It's important to share it with you again. It's from Romans chapter 8. It says this. The Spirit you received, the spirit I received, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The New Testament is clear that the spirit of God, the spirit that gave Saul power, the spirit that gave Samson power, the spirit that gave Jesus power, power, the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that spirit is in you and in me, in every single one of us who follows Jesus. And so get this, God who said to Saul, be strong and courageous, do whatever your hand finds to do because God is with you, 
is the same God who would look at you and say, I want you to be strong and courageous because I am with you. If that's the truth, why do we ever feel the need to protect ourselves? Why would we ever feel the need to save ourselves? Why would we ever feel the need to put our own interests first? Why would we ever feel the need to be prideful or arrogant or anything like that? See, we had the same exact problem as Saul. With all the power of God, he just wants to protect himself. And so I want to leave you with three questions. Question number one, if God is with me, why do I feel threatened? Think about it. When was the last time you felt threatened? Was it this morning when you read that post on Facebook? You told yourself you wouldn't open Facebook while you're still in bed anymore, but you did it anyway. Was it yesterday when uh, Twitter had that thing? Was it the day before when your relatives sent you that forwarded email because they still use email? Was it the newspaper article that you read? Was it the thing you saw on television? When was the last time you felt threatened? And when you felt threatened, were you, in fact, lying down in your bed, sitting on a soft couch, watching incredible technology, were you in the safest position you have ever been in your entire life? Yes. And that's only physically speaking. But if God is with me, why would I ever feel threatened? If God is with me, why would I ever feel the need to protect myself? If God is with me, why would I ever be afraid? That's the first question. The second question is this. Am I guilty? Am I guilty of pursuing God's glory or have I been pursuing my own? Am I guilty of pursuing my own glory instead of God's? Which is it? See, all of us are pursuing something. And Saul was just pursuing his own glory. Jonathan was pursuing God's. But here's the third question. And it's a question that is uniquely important for us in our world today. Am I following anyone like Saul? Is there anyone in my life that I am relying on who is a Saul? Is there anyone I am looking to in the world around me who is a Saul? Someone who is willing to pretend to be religious. Someone who is okay sending other people to fight battles for him. Someone who is okay with taking the credit for other people's successes. Someone who is okay with kind of just moving away out of distance when danger is coming over here. Am I following and trusting someone who's like Saul? Or am I following and trusting someone who's more like Jonathan? Someone who's willing to take the risk, sacrifice themselves, and seek God's glory. Listen, these are the questions that we have to face for us today, but the, the big thing that I want to just leave you with is that Saul is a perfect picture of a person who had every possible opportunity. He was chosen by God, placed in the right position at the right time, for the right reasons, and given the power of God himself. And he continued to choose himself. Jonathan was a man who was constantly in the wrong position. He was literally between a rock and a hard place, a, a Bozes and a, the other one. And so he was literally stuck between these two cliffs, asking, what am I supposed to do with this? He was a guy who was sent by his dad to do his dad's dirty work. But he rose up because he simply put God first. So here's the deal. What kind of person am I? What kind of person am I following? I hope you follow Jesus. And I hope today we can be people who make a commitment to only follow other people who are also following Jesus like Jonathan would. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend 
at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.